Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Welcome to Nightlight, everybody. Welcome to another exciting two-hour adventure into history and the mysteries thereof. want to uh, thank Ken Quiethawk for his amazing intro. Please search him out on the Internet. He's a Native American storyteller, and his process and his history and how he preserves history is well worth the adventure of listening to him. Certainly wait till after the show to do it. Uh, tonight I have Ryan Peterson back with me again, and we're going to be delving into his second book, or latest book, I guess, The Final Nephilim. Um, it's an amazing book, as was the first one, and I think it, it pays absolutely to read both of them. A little bit about this book. 6,000 years ago, a war began, a war to rule heaven and earth, that dates all the way back to the Garden of Eden. In the Garden, God told Satan that one day a woman would give birth to a male child, the Messiah, who would redeem humanity and destroy him. In order to prevent this child's birth, Satan instigated a fallen angelic rebellion. A group of angels broke off their allegiance to the Lord and entered the earthly realm to corrupt the human gene pool and prevent the Savior's birth. These fallen angels, sons of God, took human wives, daughters of men, and had children with them. Their offspring, hybrid, half-human, half-angelic beings, were superhuman giants known as the Nephilim. With human DNA corrupted and humanity hanging in the balance, the Lord unleashed a punishment against the Nephilim so severe only Noah and his family would survive. This book is an in-depth exploration into the biblical case for the supernatural interpretation of Genesis chapter 6. To learn the biblical evidence for the birth of the Nephilim and how the war of the two bloodlines weaves its way through the entire history of the Old Testament and I might add all the way to to today and, and the times we're living in now. This book is a comprehensive biblical study of the book of Revelation, the return of the fallen angels, and the Antichrist in the end times. 
Ryan Peterson is a biblical researcher and writer with an emphasis on ancient Hebrew thought and theology. And this material is, is fascinating, especially with the times that we're going through right now. So, welcome to the show, Ryan. I hope you have your sleeves rolled up. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you, Barb, so much for having me. Oh, listen, it's, it's, it's a joy. Um, I love this material. I, I don't know... I know the New Testament is great and all that, but the Old Testament is so full of magical, fabulous material. I mean, this is the book to read if you're going to read anything, and I understand that most people prefer the New Testament, but oh my goodness, the Old Testament is so chock full of unbelievable stuff. Um, for those people out there, and, and there are a lot, I know, but you know, those who have read in this field you know, throw around the word Nephilim really easily, but... For those who don't know who we're talking about, can can you give me kind of a, a thumbnail as to who the Nephilim were and why they were created? Absolutely. So they were, the Nephilim were some of the most critical historical figures in, in the ancient times in the Bible. They were, <clears throat> excuse me, they were half fallen angelic, half human hybrids that were uh, essentially uh, born in what we call the days of Noah. And you think of Noah's Ark and the global uh-huh. flood, probably one of the most well-known Bible stories. They, the Nephilim, were the reason for the flood. And why? Why, did, why were they the reason? Because something very important happened in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned. God pronounced to the devil that his defeat would come from a child, a child would be born one day of a, of a woman, the seed of the woman, the Messiah. And so that really set the course of human history for the next 6,000 years because the devil had his target. And so trying to prevent the Messiah's birth, to destroy the Messiah, or corrupt the Messiah was the devil's agenda throughout the entire Old Testament. And when we get to Genesis chapter 6, we see a large-scale attack on, on humanity and on human genetics where you had this rebellion. A faction of fallen angels took human women as wives and fathered the Nephilim, these hybrids. And the, and the testimony of Genesis 6 is, one, they overran the world. They were, they were hyper-depraved, evil giants who dominated the world with violence, filled it with war, and three times the testimony of Scripture is that all flesh had corrupted itself. And so the idea is, if the Nephilim could overrun human genetics and make us something other than human or image bearers of God, they could prevent the birth of the Messiah. And well, But then, then, of course, he sent the flood. And then we know also that, that one of, um, and Noah's family and you know, sons and wives were among those that were saved, but one of his sons had gone against his orders, or God's orders, I don't know who ordered it, but, but and it was Ham, and um, he took a wife who was of the corrupted bloodline so that through Ham, the Nephilim continued to live after the flood. Exactly. And when you talk about Noah, this is why Noah was so important, because God chose to essentially reboot the human race. The human race that human genetics had become so corrupted that God had to send the flood to wipe out the corrupted gene from the world and reboot humanity through Noah. And in fact, the testimony of Scripture 
is that it says Noah was perfect in his generations, or tamim, which in Hebrew refers to physical perfection, being without blemish, just like the sacrificial lambs that were used in the temple. They were to be tamim, without any blemish physically. And so Noah was perfectly human, which allowed him to continue humanity after the flood, in addition to being a believer, a faithful believer in God. But as you pointed out, he had three sons, and it was his son Ham who we later see get into a sinful situation with Noah, uh, who uh, married a woman who still had the Nephilim DNA, which then carried through on the ark. And what I demonstrated in my first book, Judgment of the Nephilim, is that you can trace all of the post-Diluvian giants back to Ham's son, Canaan, who is clearly, they can all be, just through Scripture alone, traced back to Canaan, who, interestingly, was the son who was cursed. You know, Noah cursed Canaan, and, you know, which also leads, which I speculate was, was uh, possible because he was already showing signs of having that DNA. And so it's his descendants who uh, were the, the, the post-Diluvian giants, like Goliath, like the giants we see in the land of Canaan uh, during the book of jo- in the book of Joshua during all the campaigns that are being waged by the Israelites. And, you uh-huh. know, and we, we see God saying, go in and wipe out everyone there, the women, the children, the men. This is why, you know, it's oftentimes people look at the Bible and say, hey, you know, this is just genocide, God acting irrationally, just being irrational and angry. But, no, this was a targeted military campaign and a specific group, seven nations, and that was it, who are all descendants of Canaan. And we, we're, what do we find there over and over again? Presence of the Nephilim giants. Well, and also when when you know during the Exodus, God told told the Israelites to you know stay away from certain cities because they were okay, and and steered them towards the ones that that had the Nephilim um, blood in them. I, I believe. Exactly. So great example. So yeah, so there were several nations where the, the Israelites could have made it to the Promised Land quicker, and God specifically told them, "Do not go to those nations." Because, again, it wasn't just wholesale going and just kill everyone in your path. It was really about targeting and eliminating the return of the Nephilim DNA to Earth. But wasn't there, there one, one place? I know he told, God told them, uh, Joshua and, and his guys, um, to kill everybody, children, male, female, everybody. And they did Almost to a hundred percent, but but at one point they let some of them free, or they kept some of them as slaves. I forget which it was, but there was one place where they did not kill everybody, and that made God oh, yeah, angry. Exactly. Yeah, it, it, exactly. Yes, that's that that is the case, and you see it too, especially at the end of the book of Joshua, that the the Israelites essentially started giving up on the mission. They they mm-hmm. they taken over the promised land. They distributed the land. And this is why, you know, you have, you know, centuries later, Goliath, for example, who is living among the Philistines. And this is because we're told specifically that the, that the Anakim giants, the descendants of Anak, uh, a famous giant in scripture, uh, that they headed west towards Gaza, towards Ashkelon, exactly where we find the Philistines when we get to the reign of King David. So, yeah, they, 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 let up, they kind of let up, let up on the gas, 
so to speak, and did not fully get rid of the Nephilim giants for, for centuries. And it came back, it really came back to bite them even before King David, because when we get to, even in the book of Judges, while the Nephilim didn't have the, the numbers and the military might they had in the book of Joshua, their religions completely uh, were able to, they were, their religions that they left behind, uh, which were the pagan religions we see all throughout the Old Testament, corrupted the Israelites spiritually. So they had a double effect. There was a genetic danger, but there was also the spiritual danger. Because when you look at most of the, the most uh, prohibited, forbidden practices of the occult in the Bible, they were practices that were done by these Nephilim-led nations. So, so after, after he messed up, after Satan was not able to use the Nephilim or, or to corrupt, then, then I find it, I found it fascinating in that while, while the Nephilim and fallen angels were all kind of um, consigned to the, the lower regions, so to speak, um, Satan still was able to go up to, to heaven and he was back and forth between earth because he really hadn't done any of the, while he was, the cause of it, he had not participated in a lot of the corruption that, that damned those that were sent down to the lower regions. So he basically was back and forth between earth and heaven um, this whole time. Exactly. I mean, shouldn't his pass have been revoked or something? I mean, it, it, <laughs> yeah, it, you know, it's. You know, that's, that's a great point. And it's really amazing when you think about the fact that we see in Scripture that Satan can still access heaven, can still stand before the throne of God and speak directly to God. And you wonder why. And I think that that's an important point to show how severe the sin of the angels in Genesis 6, how severe that sin was to God. Because those angels, that faction of angels who took human women as wives and had relations to father these hybrid offspring, they were punished immediately. They swiftly, in swift, devastating fashion, the floodwaters came, destroyed their kingdoms, and dragged them, killed their Nephilim giant offspring, and dragged these angels down to the abyss. We were told, of course, in the book of Second Peter chapter 2, in Jude verses 6 and 7, that they remain in the abyss, the abusos, the bottomless pit, under chains of darkness until the judgment of the great day. But, you know, the devil likes to use proxies. He likes to have others go before him and kind of do his dirty work, and he stays in the background. And so I think that's why, since he did not participate in this thing, he did not have to well, the same fate. The, the Nephilim um, were, are, are one level of, of bad guys. The fallen angels are another level. And then, of course, we have Satan. Now, now Satan was not able to complete his mission. He, he wanted to make sure that there was there was not a child born that was going to uh, defeat him, and that some you know he he had great aspirations of, I guess, being the king of heaven. Is that is that what he wanted? Is that I, I know he wanted to. He was jealous of. The energy that became Jesus, Jesus' energy pre, um, pre-incarnation was sort of as a lieutenant to God, you know, um, not second in command, but, but certainly, you know, way up there. And 
And was Satan just jealous of that position? Is that he wanted to dethrone God? What was his purpose? I think you're getting. I think you're hitting right on it. Right. We see in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 14, the devil, the aspirations of the devil to rule upon the mouth of the congregation. It says to sit in the sides of the north, which is a reference to Israel, to Mount Zion. So this is about uh-huh. ruling heaven and earth, both to actually have rulership over the angelic realm and over the earthly realm. And the last thing it says in that passage is, I will be like the most high. So the devil's aspiration is to be, to be God, to be God, to be the most high God, to be just like God. And so it was definitely about taking over, and still is. Well, out of curiosity, I mean, he's powerful. There's no doubt about it. And and if Absolutely. you look, if you look at it in angelic terms, pre-incarnate Jesus and Satan probably were pretty equal. So, was there jealousy here? Was there? Oh, I'm sure. Be- uh, yeah. I, I, I'm I'm sure. You know, we see. You know, again, another passage that I call an esoteric passage where that's really addressing a, the devil with, it appears on space to be addressing a king is in Ezekiel 28 and there it says that, that the devil that when it goes back to when he was still in his good role serving God and in serving righteousness uh-huh. and it says that it was pride he was corrupted and puffed up by his beauty by his power by his divine light and I think that led to him thinking he could be, he should be God, which again is just envy. If you think that someone in a higher position that you should have that position, you're envying them. So I think a lot of this comes down to envy, and uh, that's what that's what drove him to rebellion. That that that, that the rebellion that continues today. Well, wasn't part of it too the fact that that he put man above the God above the angels? Yeah, I think I think where man comes in, into the play is is that he gave you know we're told in the Psalms that the, that the earth itself was given over to to man to humanity the uh-huh. children of man, and so I think that when we look at the early early history in the Bible, I believe that the, the angels of course were created before Adam and Eve. You know, we read uh-huh. in the Book of Job that they sang when the earth was created; they rejoiced. So there's a history. It goes well before Adam and Eve's creation. I believe that originally it was the angels who were inhabiting this earth, and that's a, so they did have dominion. I mean, you look in Ezekiel chapter twenty-eight; it, it really gives the impression that Satan served as a high priest role in Eden. And again, this is talking about when Satan was was a good angel, was a righteous angel, and it even describes him. And the, the scripture says, "Every every precious jewel was thy covering." And it lists nine jewels that Satan wore. And all nine of those jewels are a part of the 12 that were given to the high priest, Aaron, for him to wear as high priest in the tabernacle. He wore 12 jewels, one for each tribe of Israel. And nine of those stones are nine of the nine of those stones are the same nine that the devil wore in Ezekiel chapter 28. And so I think that's the idea. So I think that the jealousy of man was instigated with the creation of Adam, and Adam was given dominion over the earth, over the garden, where the devil was once serving as a high priest. So I think you have the envy of Jesus, and you have the envy of Adam. 
all. And vengeance against God. Absolutely. I mean, you know, just, uh, you know, angry. There's there's the the absolute vengeance here. So I think what what really fascinated me was that you speak of, I can't remember if it's six or seven kings that were corrupted by Satan. Um, between between um, that period and and the time where when um, the Antichrist is going to is going to come, but there were was it six or seven actual kings that Satan corrupted? Yes. Yeah, so this is in uh, Revelation seventeen, and it's it's an angel explaining a vision of a seven headed beast to John. He says, "I'll tell you what the heads are." He said, "They are there are seven kings." And what he explains is how these kings have existed and been indwelled by the spirit of Antichrist throughout the Puritan history. And he tells John, now John's writing in circa 96 AD. So the angel speaking at that time says, five are fallen, one is, meaning is alive at that okay. time, one, and one is yet to come and shall continue a short okay. space. So, so my, my, my question is, is this the spirit of the Antichrist precarnate that is corrupting exactly. these kings? Yes, 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 exactly. So is this an angel? Yes, it that is. is. I believe that it's is. an angel, yes. Yes, I believe it's an angel. Obviously a fallen angel, and I believe he's, I believe he's identified in Revelation chapter 9. He's called the king of the bottomless pit. Apollyon or Abaddon in Hebrew. Okay, so so this spirit that will eventually be the Antichrist, um, it, it's it's uh, it, it's being obsessed by um, by it, it, it's it's possession kings and and you na- you named them and you explained how it went and I mean I was fascinated because um Nimrod and and Nebuchadnezzar and the pharaoh in Egypt all of them were powerful to a point when they turned evil and when they exactly. turned evil I would is is when this possession happened so you know, those are the only three I can remember. Um, the other names didn't ring bells with me as, as swiftly as those three did. But but Nimrod, for sure, because because he you know he's the one that built the Tower of Babel, and you know he wanted to get up there to be higher than God. Suddenly, exactly, and, exactly the same aspiration, right? And, and even gathered. The world. He wanted. He wanted a global government, gathering the entire world in one city in one tower. See, we we see, and this is a theme I talk about in the book throughout the entire book. The final nephilim is this this idea of the scroll of time. That throughout Bible, throughout the scriptures, events are repeating themselves. That time is like a scroll. It's it's not linear. It's cyclical and circular, like a, and scroll like. Because we see these foreshadows through these leaders of the ultimate fulfillment in the reign of the Antichrist. That's you know, and and you know, I knew the title of the book, and and it wasn't until oh, more than halfway into it that that 
final Nephilim is the last Nephilim, which is the Antichrist. Correct. Exactly. It would be the literal offspring. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and that's the thing is that I wanted to really, I started both books the same and with the same verse, both Judgment Nephilim and the, and the final Nephilim, but just coming from two different perspectives. Because uh-huh. we talked about already how in Genesis 3.15, God prophesied the seed of the woman, the Messiah. But there was another seed prophesied. He said, I'll put enmity between thy seed, speaking to the devil, your seed, and her seed, speaking of Messiah. So there are two seeds. And we, we know almost all theologians, pastors, teachers will agree that the seed of the woman is a reference to the Messiah, a literal being. It's not a metaphor. It's not a allegory. It's a, talking about the literal being, the Messiah, Jesus, Yeshua, HaMashiach. And so by uh-huh. the same interpretation, thy seed, meaning Satan's seed, must also be a literal being. I believe that's the Antichrist. So I think the thing that that fascinated me was that you even um, got down to the fact that the Antichrist is going to be of the of the tribe of Dan. And um, what was the other thing? The tribe of Dan, and, and that he had to be well, he had to be Jewish. And oh yeah, definitely. I, yes. And and you know that that um, I you know I, I was very surprised that that you you even named the tribe that he was going to come from. And then then when when God had divvied up the the promised land, he gave none to Dan. Why? Right, because I think some of the prophecies, there's some prophecies about the tribe of Dan that predict, I believe, that point to the Antichrist coming, that they were going to lead to the Antichrist, that, that reference adders and serpents biting the heels. You know, that, that again, uh-huh. if you think about this idea of foreshadowing in Genesis 3.15, the prophecy is that the, the Messiah will crush the head of the serpent, but the serpent will bite the heel and bruise the heel of the Messiah. So again, so this idea ripples throughout scripture. And then we see also in Revelation chapter seven, when you have the 144,000 witnesses, these Jewish witnesses, Israelite witnesses who are chosen to represent God on earth. And during the great tribulation, there's 12,000 from every tribe. And Dan is not named as one of the tribes. They are omitted. So I think that's another indication that they play a sinister role, that tribe, in the end times rather than a godly role. The, the other thing that got me was, was the, the heel bit. Um, I, I can't remember if, it, if it's Roman or Greek, but mythology, one, one of the heroes, one of the gods, uh, was protected um, against, against being killed or, or hurt or whatever, and his mother held him by the heel and dipped him into something, and it was his heel that was the only the Achilles heel. Um, was it Achilles? <laughs> it was Achilles. Yeah, yeah, you figured it out. Yeah. It was absolutely Achilles. <laughs> okay. And, and, you know, when I saw that, I thought, here's, here's something else that, that – you know, has appeared in other mythologies that that is that is coming back at us to to um, to, to sort of draw our attention to something. And it, it for me, it was fascinating in that 
you I mean you're very specific about what this antichrist is going to be um like and you don't go so far as to say he's here he's here look out but um it 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 is amazing that that the times that you describe are certainly times that we are experiencing some of so i mean is is your belief or is your theory that the the antichrist is here or is this just you you lay out what will what will be expected according to biblical text oh uh, yeah no i think he could be alive right now and i and the reason why uh well one remember i, I believe like like Jesus was born as an, uh, an infant, I believe that the Antichrist will also be born just like a regular child, a normal childbirth. So he'll have to grow, obviously, and need time to be a man. So he could be alive right now. Um, but what I also point to, and what's, what I think really is interesting, is that when you look in Revelation at the prophecies and think about what is being prophesied that could not be achieved, um, there's not much left. Uh, give it, you know, for example, we talk about the mark of the beast. Of course, everyone's familiar with that. The mark that yeah. that that you know, must be in your right hand, your forehead to buy or sell anything. It's only in the last, really, the last five to six years that we now it seems commonplace with with with, with smartphones and, and all the devices we have. But that's only in the last really six years that we can have a system now where it's very easy to say, yeah, of course we can put a chip in someone's hand and they can use it to buy or sell the same way you can scan your phone and Apple Pay or do any type of payments now wirelessly and contactless uh, purchasing. So, again, John, of course, wrote this 2,000 years ago where this was inconceivable that a mark could buy or sell goods, much less you can only purchase with that. And then think about also the two witnesses of Revelation 11, these two godly witnesses who preach in Jerusalem for uh, three and a half years. And then when the Antichrist makes his full kind of transformation into the Antichrist, he, the first thing he does is kill them. And it says that the world sees their bodies, the entire world sees their bodies slain in the street, and they rejoice. People rejoice all over the world and even send gifts to each other celebrating their death. Again, that's something else that was, only not, that was not even possible, that the entire world could see a single event into, like, in the ah. last decade. Now, again, with smartphones, with Wi-Fi, now the whole world has access on their phones to seeing a video clip of two men dead in the street. That was, you know, that, that's, that's very, very conceivable, but only in the last several years. So when I look at things like that, I think, wow, we are really, really close to this being fulfilled. Let me ask you this, then. If, if indeed a child has been born... Is that child only a vehicle to be taken over by a spirit, or is that is the spirit within the Antichrist himself? In, in other words, great question. You know, great, great question. So I believe he will be the offspring of Satan, and I think so. I think the answer, like, the answer to your question is yes. <laughs> it's both, really. Because he'll be the offspring of the devil, and I think a woman, a human woman. So he'll be a, uh-huh. a Nephilim, he'll be a hybrid. But the critical point, I believe, you know, the Antichrist will, will have a seven-year reign. But the critical juncture is at the midpoint of that. 
It's at the three-and-a-half-year mark. That's where everything turns. He, that's where he goes from being this perceived, really presenting himself as a messiah to Israel and the world as a messianic figure to turning himself into the full-on tyrant who declares himself God and institutes all this draconian law. Uh, and that's when he dies. I believe he'll be living with his own spirit and nature up into that midpoint when we're told in Revelation chapter 13, verse 4, that he receives a deadly wound to his head. He's actually killed. And, the, and again, the world witnesses this. And we're told that he comes back to life. And I, believe, and I think that's when everything turns. And I believe when he's brought back to life, obviously, in a satanic mimicry of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We just celebrated Resurrection Sunday yesterday. So, again, this is a yeah. mimic. He is, he, is, he is presenting himself. He is the strong delusion. He's the great deception. So this is the greatest deception ever done. So, he will present himself. So, uh, so but at that point, uh, at, at the point of the resurrection, I believe that's when he will be indwelled by that spirit we spoke about earlier, Apollyon, Abaddon. I believe that's when it says the beast, because it says it, it, we're told several times that this, that this beast spirit emerges in a sense from the bottomless pit. And I believe that's when it indwells him, and he is now possessed by that spirit. Now, you also said that the devil would set, uh, that, that Satan um, imbues him with his own power, too. Exactly. In order. Yes. So that so that he is not just a hybrid, he is not just taken over by the spirit of a fallen angel. He has the power of Satan as well. Exactly, and, and a big part of you know kind of the theme, you know, Jesus said that as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. So that the last few years on earth before his return, we're going to mimic the days of Noah. Well, in addition to the Nephilim giants, you also had just this idea of what I call the veil. The veil between the heavenly and earthly realms was removed in the days of Noah. You had angels openly manifesting on earth. You had Adam and Eve. Eve could talk to the devil. When they all were punished by God, they were all standing together, speaking to God directly. So this veil that separates the heavenly, the physical realm, the spiritual realm was removed. I believe the same thing will happen in the Great Tribulation. And so when we think about the Antichrist being imbued with this power of Satan, there, this is going to be a time of unbelievable supernatural feats and powers being displayed openly. Because we're told the Antichrist will have literal supernatural power as well as his uh, sidekick, the false prophet. So the Satan is going to give him power to make him, again, he's going to appear to be like the Messiah. He's going to perform miracles. He's going to be able to call fire from heaven. He's going to have literal power given to him, but given by the devil to make people think he was, that he is the Messiah. Well, that fire from heaven is something that was always known as, you know, sort of the... Um, identifier that something from God had happened or, or had been said, that fire came from heaven so you knew it was from God. So um, the devil being able to do this too is, is kind of, um, yeah, it would it would be a rude awakening for everybody. Uh, I think what, what really, first of all, the, the, the two witnesses, are they supposed to, are they prophets? 
Are they? What are they witness of? Are they witness of the coming of the Antichrist? Are they witness? I mean, what what is it that they're called witnesses? What are they supposed to be witnessing? Right. Yes, yeah, that's a great question. I think that they are going to be preaching against the Antichrist. I think that God is going to. He's not going to just have uh, the world be under the persuasion and, and speeches and sermons of the Antichrist and the false prophet to be deceived. He's going to put two witnesses right there who will speak against them, who, by the way, cannot even be harmed for the first three and a half years at all. And so, and I think that, and I think that we see a preview of this with Moses and Aaron being sent to Pharaoh uh-huh. in the Exodus, that God sends two witnesses to go and tell Pharaoh, basically, that you need to allow God's people to worship, you know, worship God, worship Yahweh. And I think that that's uh-huh. what the two witnesses are going to do. And I think this is why as soon as the Antichrist is resurrected and is now imbued with all this power and is possessed by this spirit of, of Apollyon, the first thing he does is kill them. And we see the world celebrate, and I think that's because they, they've been basically the world just hates them. <laughs> they've been a thorn in the side of the world because they're they're enjoying this wonderful reign of the of the of, the, of this perceived Messiah who they think is the Messiah. And, and these two guys are kind of raining on the parade by constantly preaching against him, saying it's the worst deception in the world. He wants you all dead. He wants you to slaves to Satan, etc. And so that's why they celebrate. You know, because that's a, that's a very interesting detail in the Bible that not only are they going to be killed, but the world will celebrate. They will see their death, see their bodies in the street, celebrate, and even send gifts to each other. So this, these are people, the, the witnesses are going to be well-known and despised by the majority of the, of the unsaved world. I, it just, you know, when I look at the world today, because the, it, they, it talks about, a one-world religion. In other words, you know, bringing monotheism into, you know, encompassing and embracing all of the religions monotheistically, um, if that's a word. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, we're, we're at a time and place in history, if you look around the world, um, it, it while, while some things do feel like it's end times-ish, other t- other things look like how would you ever get, you know, um, the Roman Catholics and and the the um, Islamics and every I mean, if you look at all the religions, everything God is everywhere. I mean, it, it and and you know, it's kind of like my God is better than your God, but they're all the same God. Um, I understand that, and and a lot of people do too. But but how possibly could could anyone get all of this all of these religions to to blend together to a point where everybody is focused in the same direction I think it's a combination of two things I think it's the combination of again the power of the supernatural I think that you know when we see literal supernatural feats being performed before our eyes, miracles, that that's going to win the world over. People are going to be persuaded. You're seeing supernatural powers manifest right before your eyes, on TV, on your smartphone, and everyone can witness it. The second thing to remember is that, you know, the, it, when these, in, in the Great Tribulation, you have 
what I call a second flood, like it was in the days of Noah. In the days of Noah, you had the waters come from the fountains of the deep, from beneath the surface. And you also had the windows of heaven open, and of course, bring down rain for the first time in Earth's history. In the end times, you're going to have a flood, but it's going to be an angelic flood. You have the abyss, the bottomless pit opened at the fifth trumpet of Revelation 9, where the angels who are called locusts, and I believe are the same Genesis 6 angels who have been locked in chains for millennia. They're released onto uh-huh. the earth. But you also have Satan finally, finally getting evicted. We see this in Revelation 12, where he is finally evicted from heaven and can no longer return. And the rest of his fallen angels are all cast out. There's a war where Michael fights against the devil and his angels. It says Michael prevails. And there was no more uh-huh. place found for the devil and his angels. And so they're going to come to earth. So, you know, one of the sources I quote in the final Nephilim is it's the oldest existing writing on the book of Revelation, the oldest commentary that still exists. It's written by Hippolytus, circa 202 AD. It's called On Christ and Antichrist. And it's amazing to read that he paints this picture where he writes, he says, imagine when the devil and his angels are cast out of heaven, that rather than coming to earth to fight against Christians or fight, you know, or dominate and take over, they just are hovering over the, over the ground, bathed in beautiful light, singing with angelic voices, and just presenting themselves as benevolent beings. And then what do they do? So, they said that, so he understood that they can, they're going to, they can come as a complete deception. And what if they do that and say, hey, we're here to help you. We're here to help you advance. They may even say they're from another planet. And, and then they point the world to the Antichrist. And they say, and on top of everything, this is our chosen hero. This is our chosen Messiah. Our leader is this, is this, this leader who you've been following. We've come back for him because he's our leader. He is the one who can lead you to your next step of evolution, who can lead you to immortality. So I think that combined kind of shock and awe of being supernatural uh-huh. powers and heavenly realm beings, I think that can win over anybody. Muslim, Hindu, certainly an atheist. There will be no atheist in the Great Tribulation. I think that oh, yeah. combination will be a very persuasive, very, very persuasive to win people over and think that this must be God when they see this type of thing happening. So, so there, were, there are 144,000 that um, Jews that are protected um, in, someplace in Israel, I believe, that they don't experience this whole thing and that they, they are released after all of the bad stuff happens. I mean, where well, did know, the 140, yeah, well, where did they come from? Yeah. Well, we're not, we're not told exactly where they come from. We're told they're tribes. Um, but the interesting thing in Revelation 7 is that the judgments are about to happen. And so there are four angels who are standing on the four corners of the earth. And God uh-huh. tells them, don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until I've sealed my servants in their foreheads. So I believe they're given supernatural protection. So I think they're going to be on earth during the judgments that we see in the Great Tribulation, but they're going to be supernaturally protected, which, again, was foreshadowed in the book of Exodus, where you had the plagues taking place that were, that were punishing Egypt, darkness, uh, life, frogs, locusts. Uh-huh. Every time it happens, 
the Israelites were protected. They lived in Goshen, and where they lived, they weren't harmed. It said that the entire Egypt was in darkness, so, so, so dark and so thick you could touch it, but yet in Goshen they had light. So I think, again, God was giving us a preview of what he, how he's going to protect the 144,000 Israelite believers um, and servants of his, obviously special, these special witnesses he has uh, during the Great Tribulation. So in, in essence, it is a second exodus of sorts. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. And yeah, I do. I truly believe that the the, the the Great Tribulation is the second exodus. It really is. And if you think about it, too, is that it, it all culminates with Christ leading his people into the promised land, into Jerusalem, where everything culminates. So, yes, it is a, definitely, a, I think the exodus is a clear foreshadow of all the events of the end times. But isn't isn't Jerusalem destroyed? In the Great Tribulation, I think it's going to be uh, very. It will definitely be attacked. I think it's going to be attacked uh, pretty pretty severely uh, in the Great Tribulation. But that's but but nevertheless, that's going to be um, where the final battle will take place in the, in the valley, which is called the Valley of Jehoshaphat in the Book of Joel at the. The, uh-huh. At the feet of the Mount of Olives, that's where the ba- final battle takes place between Christ and Antichrist. That is where Jesus will defeat the Antichrist in the Mount of, I'm sorry, in the Valley of Jehoshaphat, which again is, of course, due east of the city of Jerusalem. Uh-huh. Just, just curious here. It, I, I understand that 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 um, all the books are inspired. They are written from the frame of reference of the people that are writing them. But if yes. we're talking about a spiritual battle, is it really going to have, you know, swords and horses and chariots, or is this battle going to be more of an etheric battle that isn't really one in, I mean, let's face it, the the two the two the two groups fighting are are immortal. They're they're they can't die. So what what I mean I, I, it to me the the battle that they're describing is talking chariots, is talking spears, is talking dead people all over the place. But but if these are angels that are fighting, angels are immortal. So. Is it a battle that is, you know, bloody and gory and stuff like that, or is it another level of consciousness that is being at war here? Well, we're told, I think two things on that. I think, you know, we're told that, you know, angels do fight. They wage war. You know, somehow there's going to be a conflict in heaven, you know, with Michael and Satan and their armies that's going to lead to them being thrown out. Now, now interestingly, to your point, Satan isn't killed in that battle, but they're cast out. So there's some type of warfare that can at least establish, okay, you can no longer be here. And then I think the okay. final judgment of the angels, while they can't, maybe they can't be killed as being immortal, is certainly they are uh, cast into the lake of fire, which is what we see happen to the Antichrist and the false prophet. And we're told also, Jesus said that the lake of fire was prepared 
for the devil and his angels. It was, it was not even intended for human beings. It was specifically prepared as a place of punishment for angels. So I think there's something in the nature of how the lake of fire works that it can, I guess, torment them <laughs> uh, for time so, memorial. So are we witness to an angelic battle in which we take no part? Well, I would, I would, I would, I wouldn't say we don't, we don't, we don't play any part. Because while I do um, believe in a in a pre-tribulation rapture, the church believers will be taken out of the earth to meet Jesus in the clouds and taken to heaven during these seven years. Uh-huh. When when Jesus comes back, his saints are with him. We are in the army. Believers are in his army. He says the Lord will come back with ten thousands of his saints. That's the, te- that's the testimony of the Book of Jude. So it's not that we, so it's not like believers are just on the sideline. When when the Armageddon is happening, all believers are in the army of Christ. So um, we will we will have a role to play. Well, you know, in 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 the Bible somewhere, they talk about about God's army and God's. You know, I mean, it's thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of angelic beings. So. So does Jesus have all of those guys, or does he have his own army? Well, I, mean, I is this, is, def- I, I, I'm trying to figure out if it's a battle between Satan and Jesus, is God watching or is he a part of? And if he's a part of the devil, the, the devil doesn't stand a chance. He doesn't stand a chance. <laughs> yeah, that I agree with. I mean, and that, and that's really when you think about it, um, the you know the 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 battle of Armageddon in terms of Christ and Antichrist is it's a short battle. Jesus shows up and he just wins. And even in Second Thessalonians, it says that the brightness of his coming, that almost like his his light and the spirit of his mouth, the breath, is enough to just destroy the Antichrist and his armies. And so it's it's over. I think going to be over quickly, and uh, really kind of like again. Going back to the foreshadows, you think about David and Goliath. Call the chapter on Armageddon in my book, David versus Goliath, Battle for Heaven and Earth, because I believe David and Goliath was a preview. Of course, you have Jesus Christ, who was a descendant physically of King David. He's called the son of uh-huh. David. It's a messianic title. Then you have Goliath, who, of course, is a Nephilim hybrid. He's a giant battling for the state of Israel. You know, Goliath told David, if I win... All your people are my slaves. So, which is exactly what the Antichrist's agenda is in the end time, which is to rule and seduce Israel into worshiping him, to being subject to him. And so, look how quickly that battle was over. One shot, one stone, uh-huh. and Goliath was dead. And so, I think even even the swiftness of the victory of David was a foreshadow of how quickly Jesus, God in the flesh, will vanquish the Antichrist in the end times. Yeah, it's, it's. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, with the world and the condition it's in now, you know, everybody's saying, oh, these are the end times. Um, and yet, I, I you know, I, they're, they're bad for sure. But it seems to me that, that there's there's so much yet to be manifested um, I know there's there's Benjamin Krem is talking about he was talking in the 70s about you know um, 
the Antichrist had been born, and his I think Maitreya is his name, and he's Maitreya, yeah, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I mean, I, I, I don't know if I, I, I know Benj- Benjamin Krim has now passed away, but the person carrying on for him, he's asked to be on the show a number of times, and I've said no. <laughs> um, yeah. But I think I checked it out with you once, and I said, "This is this is Antichrist stuff, right?" And you said, "Yes." <laughs> oh yeah, definitely, um, definitely. I think that if somebody's going around claiming to be the Antichrist, I, I, if for this person to come to power, he can't be claiming to be the Antichrist. He has to be claiming to be savior for humanity, sure. But exactly. the minute he says anti, yeah. you know, minute the minute somebody you know says I'm the Antichrist, um, you know, you you got to step back and say, if you are, I'm getting out of the way. Um, so so it's sort of like this person is going to have to come out of left field, it would seem to me. Yeah, um, absolutely. I think so. Yeah, I, I think I think you're right. I think that it has to be. I don't. I don't think he's going to come and say he is the Antichrist. I think he's going to rise, ascend to power, and again, uh-huh. really present himself initially as as a messianic figure, as someone who's here to help the world, someone who wants to save Israel and reignite. Uh, temple worship and all those things and really reignite Judaism, uh, I think, on a level not seen in millennia. But is this this one world religion going to be Judaism or is it going to be more of a um, a mixture of everything? I mean, I can't see uh, all of... I, you know, it... it, it to, to, I can't see it as being Judaism because I don't see how that could blend. It has to be more of a montage. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think that, again, that when you look at the supernatural feast being performed, I think he'll conform, the Antichrist, that is, will be able to conform himself to say, yes, that, you know, your religion spoke of Maitreya coming one day, I am him. Your your uh, religion talked of uh, Twelfth Mopti, I am he. You know, so that he, and I think, but you know, again, we cannot underestimate the fact that the Bible says on several occasions in one chapter, Revelation 13, that that the Antichrist is going to have the full power of Satan, that he's going to have supernatural power, he's going to perform miracles, lying uh-huh. signs and wonders. When you think about signs and wonders in the Bible, you think of the Red Sea parting, the you yeah. know, the, the day the sun stood still. These are these are shocking shocking uh, events and the Antichrist is going to be able to, as one man to perform these things to, to, on, that, on that scale so again I think that that will make it easier for him to say he is you know an avatar for messianic figures of various religions or you know so I think that's how he can do I think that's how it will be easier for the different religions to see him as their personal chosen one, whatever the title may be, because again, he's going to be the person who's literally performing supernatural feats. Well, I know when Benjamin Krem was in the seventies, he was saying that that uh, the the um, second coming uh, that that person was going to um, contact everyone um, telepathically. Um, I must not have been on the mailing list. Um, <laughs> But but 
but it, you know, it, it's it's there are so many of us that 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 you know have looked at biblical history and biblical prophecies and 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 the fact that a lot of the prophecies are also mirrored in 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 you know Greek and Roman history and Norse history. I mean, there there seems to be a cycle of of these prophecies, these messiahs, if you will. And and you know we haven't had a messiah in a long time, and you know as in my opinion, any messiah who comes down here has got to be ready to be killed because that's what we do to people who are trying to spiritually help us. So, um, <laughs> unfortunately, that's the case. <laughs> yeah, I mean you know it's it's almost like the witch trials, you know, yeah, the the to them and, and you know if. If they if they floated, then then they were a witch and they had to be killed. And if they if they drowned, then they were they were innocent. But too bad. So you know, I, I get the feeling that someone who comes in a religious context is not going to get anywhere. So in my my feeling is that that is if there is a second coming coming these days, it it can't possibly be in a religious context in order to snow the whole world. Right. Well, it's interesting that you say that because part of it, I think, too, an aspect of the Antichrist that we haven't discussed is his political, I mean, I'm sorry, his military conflict. That yeah. He, one, he's going to present himself supernat- as a, with the supernatural powers and the miracles, but also he's going to be waging wars. He's going to be fighting against Israel's neighbors. And, and defeating them. So he's almost going to appear also as a liberator. So I think, and that's really the first part of his career. It's much more political and military, and then it moves to the spiritual and the supernatural. So I think you're on to something, that he, his entree won't be so much as a spiritual figure at the onset. Well, and, and that, that beginning career while he's a Nephilim-formed container, he really isn't the the Antichrist yet until he's killed and is um, resurrected. Exactly. And that's where you see him sort of being called the beast. And even the language we see in that chapter of Revelation, it goes back and forth between calling him a man and a beast, but he's taking on the full nature of an angel by being indwelt, by being possessed. So, yeah, I, I agree. That's when he becomes the capital A Antichrist at his death and resurrection and then being possessed by that fallen angel. And if he's read Revelations, <laughs> you know, not wanting to put myself in that position, but someone who has that kind of power can create miracles and stuff like that. What kind of a uh, even 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 one possessed by an angelic nasty guy? I mean, you've seen your history written biblically. Are you stupid to think that you can make you can change history? I mean. Wouldn't the, I, it just if, if if I I can't I can't put myself in that place? But if I knew that my history was already written, 
why would I continue along that line? Wouldn't I try to change it? Yeah, and I think that's. And I, I, I think also, I think one, I think one, the devil and the antichrist, by extension, they are trying to change and undo God's plans. But two, just remember, just having head knowledge is not belief, right? We're told they don't. I don't, I don't believe that the devil believes everything God says. And the Antichrist also. I don't. I don't think they believe everything. I mean, the whole, you know, even going back to the first time we hear from the devil speaking to Eve, he says, "Yea, hath God said?" He's doubting God's word from the beginning. And so I think that, again, yeah, surely, we're told yeah. it's faith. It's the spirit of God that gives faith to believe. And I don't believe the devil has that spirit or the Antichrist. So I think they know they they, they know God's word. These are ancient beings uh-huh. we're talking about who are very familiar with God, with the with the good righteous angel, with the archangels. They're familiar with all these things and with God's word. But I don't think they believe it. I actually don't think they, they oh. have any faith in God or and, the Antichrist. Well, yeah. And he said to Eve, you know, surely thou won't die. And exactly. she didn't. So right. Okay. So so <laughs> there is that that element. Yeah, yeah. Well, eventually, yeah. yeah. But the arrogance. Yeah. But she died spiritually, of, right? She died spiritually. She was she she suffered spiritual death, and I think that that that's uh. Yeah, but you're right, right? On one on one hand, he said, and he also said, "You'll know good from evil," and they did. They knew that they were wrong. So on uh-huh. one hand, there was some truth in what he was saying because they, they realized, oh, we messed up. We got to hide from God. So they did know good from evil after they ate from that tree. So it wasn't that everything stayed there was alive, but he did, but he was still casting doubt in God's word. And so, uh, so but yeah, but I don't believe the devil believes. I don't think the devil believes everything God says is true. <laughs> well... Um, so then, then Jesus rules for a thousand years. Yeah. And then they let everybody go to screw up again. What? I mean, why? <laughs> well, there's, there's something that's a great. I think I think that actually ties into your prior question. So, a couple of things to say about this. We see in Revelation 20 uh, where Satan, first of all, at, at Armageddon. The Antichrist and the false prophet, when they are defeated, they are captured by Christ. They're thrown into the lake of fire. They are gone for good. They are punished. They are gone. They are off the scene. Interestingly, the devil is not. He is not cast into the lake of fire. In fact, he is taken to the bottomless pit, and he's put in chains. It says a mighty angel comes with a chain. So he's chained and put in darkness in the bottomless pit just like the Genesis 6 angels. And I believe because finally, now that Satan has finally committed the sin of fornication himself and had his own offspring, the Antichrist, now he, he has to suffer the same punishment the original fathers in Nephilim had to suffer back in the days of Noah. But getting to your point, he is locked in that prison for 1,000 years. And then while Christ rules on earth, literally ruling on earth, the millennial reign of Christ, and then he's released uh, and, and mounts a war again against God again. And so why is that happening? And I think there's two reasons. I think one is that every human being has to have their faith tested. So the, the human beings, you know, in the millennial reign, they're going to be, it, it's going to be uh, like the days of Noah. It's going to be, uh, they're going to be flesh and blood human beings living alongside 
immortal human beings who have already been raptured and glorified and received their immortal bodies who are believers and angels and Jesus. So it's going to be a very interesting earth. <laughs> and so, but there'll be no devil. There's no devil. There, the fallen angels aren't there. There's no presence of the devil. So, they, so those people are going to grow up. They, they still have a propensity to sin. And we're told in the book of Zechariah that there is going to be sin. That if they don't come, everyone will have to observe the Feast of Tabernacles. And if you don't come, you're punished with a drought. So there's definitely going to be sin and disobedience during the millennial reign of Christ. It's not a perfect, sinless world. But, they, they, but that, those people will have to be tested with temptation of the devil, just like every other human being since Adam and Eve have been tested. That's the first thing. The second reason, which I think goes back to your prior question, is I think that if we think about this, everything that's happening in the Bible from the angelic perspective, I believe there's a much bigger conflict going on. And again, that's why I said this predates humanity. We got thrust into the middle of the battle in, 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 you know, halfway through the, halfway through the story. And so, uh-huh. and, and so I think on some level there's a military conflict taking place, but there's also a judicial conflict taking place. Right? We're told in Revelation that the devil stands before God's throne accusing Christians. Says he's the accuser of the brethren who accuses us day and night. So there's, some, there's a judicial proceeding taking place in the heavenly realm. I think part of it is the devil trying to prove God wrong, that his way is not right. He's not as perfect as he says he is. His word is not reliable. And I think that God is trying to show that no matter what happens, this being is always wrong. The devil is always wrong and will always choose evil. And I think the final attack we see in Revelation 20 is that God says, even after he's been punished for a thousand years, let him out, and the first thing he's going to do is try and corrupt humanity again and do the whole thing over again that's just, that, that led to all the problems in the first place again. And so, so I think it's the, kind of like the, the closing argument for why this being should be punished forever and all those who are attached to him as well. Well, you, you know, your, your, your first um, chapter um, is, is – the beginning is the end, and the end is the beginning. So, yes. so, so you do bring up the point that it, it appears that it, that it is it is cyclical. That yes. that when dealing with immortality and immortals, um, you know they're not getting old. They don't get arthritis. They don't lose their teeth <laughs> or their hair. I mean. <laughs> you know, and 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 uh, you know, time is irrelevant to them. So a thousand years, you know, he took a nap. I mean, you know, it it really, um, it, it to me that's not punishment. Um, exactly. Yeah, I think you're. I think you're right. Right. These, these, we're talking about beings who exist outside of time. Right. It's itself. Right. God exists outside of time. And I, right. I and I believe can exist in multiple times simultaneously, right? You know, and I, and I point out some of these things that, that that I think overlap with what quantum physics has been discovering in the past century. You know, this idea of quantum superposition existing in multiple states at the same time, quantum entanglement, where a particle can exist in multiple times, dimensions, time at the same time, and all be connected, and so. I think when we see, I think the Bible has been revealing this 
from the beginning. Like even even the idea that where it says in Revelation that Jesus is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. You know, how does uh-huh. that make sense? That Jesus was 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 crucified before the world was even created. How does that make any sense? Unless we're speaking about a being God who existing outside of time, where past, present, and future are all just circling in a sphere around him. And yes, and of course he and of course the crucifixion takes place from the foundation of the world because again, all these events are cycling over and over again and God is outside of time because and we see kind of we see references like this in the Bible on many occasions. I even point to the concept of the Trinity. You know, these are some of the things that people <laughs> scratch their heads over for years talking about the Bible. I say, well, how is it that Jesus says that He's praying to the Father, but He says, "I and my Father are one." The Father's uh-huh. in heaven; He's on earth, and He says, "If you've seen Me, you have seen the Father." How could that be? How is he, and, and even the description of the Trinity, that they are three but one. And I think, again, from the scientific world, they would say that is quantum superposition. You have a particle existing in multiple states, an electron that's spinning up and spinning down at the same time. And so I think that's so, so I kind so, of use that. As a, yeah, go ahead. Let me, let, me, let me hit the Trinity again because you, you have Jesus, Precarnate, um, fighting fighting with Joshua, uh, the Canaanites. He's he's the lieutenant of God here. So, as the lieutenant of God, you know, there's no sun yet. So where's the Trinity? Right. Has the yeah, Trinity all has the Trinity always been in the beginning, in the middle, in the end, or did exactly. the Trinity happen? It's always it's always existed, and I think you I, I, even I, I think about this. You know, again, before they're about to enter the promised land and fight those wars, God told Moses, He said, "I will send my angel before you to fight." Uh-huh. He said, "Listen to him, for if you don't, he will not pardon your sins. Only God can forgive sins." And He said, "I put my name in him. My name, meaning Yod Hey Vav Hey." the divine name, the Tetragrammatron, he said, I put my name in him, making meaning they're equal, right? And even if you think yeah. about the Exodus there, you have the pillar of smoke and the pillar of fire. They were on opposite sides of the, you know, of the, the, the caravan of Israelites. So even then you had two beings existing at the same time, but they're both God. And so I think that the Trinity has always existed, um, but obviously, I mean, of course, you, you already referenced the fact that, that Jesus was fighting the Nephilim giants in the Promised Land. So I think the Trinity's always existed, but obviously, in a different for Jesus in particular, you had two different forms. You had the pre-incarnate Jesus, and then you, of course, you had the incarnate, born as a baby in a manger, living, growing into a, a human man, into a grown man. Well, um, yeah, I've always, I, I've always thought that that. If we talk about God as an entity, as a consciousness, um, he had no body. So the only way that he could experience pain and suffering and disappointment and hunger and, I don't know, upset stomachs and everything, is to be incarnate in the physical. So in essence, Jesus as a an angel gave up his wings, so to speak, to, to come down and incarnate as a human 
and experience life and all of the joys of life um, in order to give a, a greater depth of perception to God? Sure, I would even step further. So one, we're told that he he was tempted in all ways. He knows, he understands all our sicknesses, our pain. So yes, a big part of the reason why Jesus became human was to empathize with us. There's nothing we can say that he can't understand because he's up on a throne in heaven. He's lived Uh through it all. He's suffered. He's been hated. One of the worst things that most people can experience in life, uh, and I, I don't mean on a pain level, but just on an everyday experience, is being accused of doing something you have not done wrong. Uh-huh. And that there's very few things that get people as angry as when you, and upset as when people are openly accusing you of something you did not do at all and saying, you did this wrong. You know, you stole this. You lied about this. And you did, we don't want to be wrongly accused. And, of course, Jesus, obviously that's what happened to Jesus at the crucifixion. So all these things are things that Jesus did for to, to empathize with us. But there was a thing that some other purposes behind it, too, in that our redemption is not just spiritual. And I say this in, in my first book, I explain that our, our redemption is spiritual and physical. There's a genetic component. We are called the body of Christ. We are taking on the divine nature, that we are part of Christ. It says that when we see him, we shall be as he is. So it's not just so Jesus becoming human, I think, was critical to to physically redeem humanity. And the scriptures say that specifically that when he came to earth, he did not take on the nature of of angels, but but took, but took on the nature of the seed of Abraham. So it's distinguishing. Uh-huh. This is a specific actor. He became human specifically because there's something in God's order that in order for us to be redeemed, it has to be through, there's a genetic component. So he had to be human. Just as I think he has to be human to rule over us on earth when he rules the millennial reign. I think that's even why you need an antichrist. Because if you think about it, Satan reaches, when we get to Revelation, Satan is now on earth. He's been cast out of heaven. And rather than just use his powers in himself, he gives his power to the Antichrist. Because he gives his power, his seat, his authority. He gives it all over to his offspring. Why? I think even that is a part of it, too, because you had to have, an, even for the Antichrist, he has to have humanity in him, being a hybrid, to rule over the, hum, the human realm. So I, think there's a, so I think Jesus becoming human has multiple implications. You know, I think there's an emotional, empathetic one. There's a redemptive aspect of it, as well as uh, an authority attached to being human, being the last Adam, right? The first Adam was given authority over the earth. The last Adam uh-huh. gained it back from the devil. What Now, if, if the um, Antichrist is imbued with, I mean, he's, he's Nephilim, so he, yeah. and then once Satan gives him his power as well, it duplicates it. I'm sure Satan keeps a bit. Um, oh, yeah. That makes I him Im- immortal too. So so he can't be destroyed. But again, like an angel, he's cast into the lake of fire, right? He Remember, remember he, he, at Armageddon, he's going to be cast into the lake of fire. So I don't know if he's going to die per se, but he will be suffering the same fate of all the fallen angels, which is the lake of fire. And they're all immortal as well. So that right. would infer 
that in time, <laughs> and immortal means no time, they'll be set free. I mean, it, you know, what's the point? If this is cyclical, what are we learning from it? Where do we better ourselves and go beyond it? I mean, wh- what's the purpose of all of this if it's going to happen again? Well, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's going to happen again. Because, again, we even look at the fact that the, it's, it, it says, uh, I, did, I did a show on this recently, on the second death, that it, you see this, this, this description of the second death where it says, death itself and hell cast into the lake of fire. So even physical death is destroyed. Hell, the, the, the holding cell of all the wicked, is the holding cell is now destroyed. Everything, every vestige of evil is destroyed um, by the time we get to Revelation chapter 21. So, so I don't know. I, I think the scroll of time comes to an end at that point because now we're entering a whole new realm that humanity has never experienced before because God is now creating an earth that is literally sin-free, because I, I think even the soil of the earth in the in Genesis chapter 1 has sin in it, because that's a judged earth, because I think that earth is already occupied. But even, the, even the very soil that Adam was made from had the vestiges of sin, I think, from the original angelic rebellion, yet when we get to mm-hmm. Revelation 21, it's like a new heaven and a new earth, right? And so now we're literally entering a new phase, where it's a universe absent of sin, absent of evil. What will happen from there? I don't know. I don't know, but I don't well, think if, but I think but I don't think we'll see Satan again. I don't think Satan gets another chance to come back and start the whole cycle again. I think we're now entering a new a new scroll has been opened, so to speak. Okay. I, I it just it it to me it just it feels like it's it's repetitive. It feels like you know what's happened before will happen again and and you know and we've seen it so if this is not a repetition then humanity goes beyond this into another realm another dimension perhaps um maybe this is the way that we become um evolved enough to be able to to merge into a greater um, a greater society that is out there beyond us, in, you know, galactically, interdimensionally, whatever. I mean, it, it, it could be something like that as well. I know that, that um, you know, if, if angels are suddenly floating in the sky, the ufologists are going to have a hell of a time explaining that one. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I, and I touched on that in the book as well. But I think that, that I think when you have that Revelation 12 scenario that Hippolytus wrote about, you know, uh, 1,800 years ago saying that they're going to be floating in the sky bathed in beautiful light with wonderful voices. I think that's where you could really see the UFO phenomenon play out. Where they, they could say, we're from another planet. We seeded the Earth 7,000 years ago. We created you, and now we're back to help you evolve into, you know, Homo Novus, Homo Sapien 2.0, and, and, and give you our wisdom and our knowledge and all those types of things. So I think that's there's definitely an opportunity, a window of opportunity for the UFO phenomenon to play out uh, in this great tribulation. Absolutely. And, and you know, when you think of, of the Vimanas and stuff like that, um, 
yeah, I, I've often wondered, you know, uh, people people picture angels with wings and stuff like that, and 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 then they have these these chariots that they ride around in, and you know, come on with um, Enoch and and um, oh. Who else is it? I mean, there are two of them, but but the rings of the, the rings of fire that is, have taken you know that God travels in and stuff like that, so that so that there is that element of does God really need a vehicle? Um, and and so so you you, you I mean the, the UFO stuff does come in here, and and it is quite fascinating how you know it, depending on you know wh- what you're reading. Um, you know just just exactly where all of this this leads to um i i kind of i, I was fascinated with the fact that you were that you you utilized um sources from the second and first and second century which you know i didn't think there was much much there to draw from i mean eusebius and josephus but you know you found other texts that i didn't even know about well, thank you. I, 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 you know, I really love uh, the going back to those days of the early church, early rabbinical sources, and, and, and the 1700s and 1800s as well. And the reason why is because the supernatural realm was a given for, for people at that time. There wasn't yeah. so much of, of this understanding has been lost in the modern church um, for, for multiple reasons. I think a lot of it has to do with money, unfortunately, but also uh, I think some of it was a, was a knee-jerk reaction to evolution to try and make the Bible seem as, as mundane and rational as possible. And, and, and that, I think that hurt a lot of seminaries at the turn of the 20th century. Um, but, yeah, uh-huh. none, of the, none of that was a problem in, in the first century <laughs> A.D. at all. So they fully embraced this stuff. So, so the, I, I love, and, and, and also I think we don't talk about it, we don't highlight those sources enough. So I really um, like to spend a lot of time to really show that what that, as the irony is the things that the church now calls fringe beliefs, like the Nephilim and all these fallen angelic wars and genetics and all these things, that's actually the orthodoxy of the church. If you go back to the, uh-huh. the earliest centuries of the church, that was the orthodox belief. What's fringe is what we're teaching today in most churches. That's the actual fringe. <laughs> so that was never taught for 1,800 years. It, it just it, it, it does boggle my mind when, and, and oftentimes, sometimes when these, these, these texts are found, Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, um, the, the church really doesn't want to acknowledge them, um, and there's so much out there. There's so much material that when, when the Bible, um, Constantine had the Bible created, and then once it was created, all of the other texts he 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 tried to destroy so there wouldn't be any conflict. So so much material has has slipped through our fingers, so to speak. Oh, definitely, definitely. But you know. Um... By God's grace, a lot of it is coming back, and a lot of uh-huh. research, there's some great research out there on the Dead Sea Scrolls, some new research out there that's being done, and a lot of these ancient sources are being discussed again. That's where I'm, and, I, and I'm trying to I'm trying to play a small part in helping that happen because I think that we need to go back to the the original understanding because we've lost. Otherwise, you lose sight of it once you start focusing on 
yourself and how to, you know, five steps to looking better and feeling better and helping, you know, you make more money and things like that, that you were really far from it. You'll never find that in any of the Dead Sea Scrolls, I can assure you. No. (laughs) (laughs) No. But but what I I find fascinating is that the Bible is written in Old English. Nobody talked that way then. And, yes. and, you know, if you go back and, and, you know, it was from Aramaic and Latin and, mm-hmm. then, you know, it, 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 most of the material there has been translated three, four, five times. And sure. how do you really know what they meant? I mean, when, when I write yeah. anything, I write, I write from my frame of reference, which is, you know, this particular point in time. A thousand years from now, this frame of reference is going to be, I mean, nobody will understand. Um, my, my, my grandson, um, you know, doesn't, doesn't, you know, uh, he listens to stuff on, on a, t- a tablet for him is electronic. A tablet for me is a piece of, is, is a bunch of paper put together. I mean, so that, so that even over what, 60, 70 years, the meaning of words have changed. So, how do we know exactly what they really meant? Well, I think it's God. You know, I believe in the divine inspiration of scriptures, and I think that God, I think we actually benefit because, you know, the book of Daniel says that knowledge will increase over time. So I think we have the benefit uh-huh. of actually having more understanding and more revelation than even the days of the apostles. I mean, again, you think about the apostle John writing the book of Revelation, in 96 A.D., and he writes in chapter 13, there is a mark in your right hand and forehead, and nothing can be bought or sold without it. I mean, in the first century A.D., you could literally trade any object for any commercial good. You could, uh-huh. t- you could trade beads for a cow. You could trade flour, uh, you know, for jewelry. You know, everything was everything was fungible. Everything was exchangeable. There was there was nothing that wasn't of commercial value could not be traded. Anything could be traded. So, I, could John really understand what he even wrote when he said that? Could he could he possibly even conceive what would that what would that look like to the first century mind? And he's writing nothing on earth. Any person, great, small, rich, poor, captains, generals. No one, a fully globalized system, that must have seemed insane to him at the time. That literally nobody well, on the entire planet can buy anything without a mark in their hand? And I can just well, take my well, cow I'm holding right now and go get some get a house for it? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, he was sitting in a cave on an island where he'd been exiled, and people, you know, have suggested that there might be mushrooms involved. But... Um, <laughs> But but again, it, it you know what he was writing was symbolic, and and you know open to interpretation from every generation, which is what I find fascinating because you know at oh, the time I, I they agree. were, you know they they were they were uh, comparing it to Rome, and you know now you know we're comparing it to certainly greater things, and. And I'm wondering if every generation is going to have their own interpretation and each one adds another level of understanding and perception to the meaning of whatever it was he saw. 
I, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think especially when it comes to prophecy, that's the case. Definitely. Because, again, we, we have the benefit of science fiction. Of, and I, I shouldn't even say science fiction, of reality, of RFID chips. Because so they're, they're, they're real. So, so we, we, this is so conceivable to us today. Telecommunication is so conceivable. Seeing someone's body in Israel when you're sitting in America is not a big deal to us. Of course, we can do it. No, we have multiple screens all surrounding us. So, but so yeah. So I think again that each generation kind of gets closer to the full revealing, and that's really what Revelation is, right? It's, it's all about the fact that we're moving closer and closer to God fully revealing Himself to the world. So it's 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 it's, it's approaching. It's an ascent to something. It's re, and it's that's the full apocalypse, which is the full revelation. So. John was far away, but he, he so, so maybe he didn't have the full understanding even himself. But now, oh, again, yeah. I, that's why I think we're close because there's so much. There's not. There's nothing. I don't see anything described in the Book of Revelation that can't be achieved with the technology we have in 2022. <laughs> so. That's scary. Uh, it, it it's you know it's taken what 2,000 years to come this far. About yes. And yeah. and I'm wondering if it in another two thousand years, if the interpretation at that time, if in, if 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 the Antichrist has not presented himself, then you know it's another generation that is going to try to take on to understand what is yet to come. And I think it's it's really Im- I, the most important part of all of this to me is. There is something coming. Be prepared, and even if it's not in my in my lifetime, um, to to adjust my mode of living and how I treat people and and how I express myself, you know, to my fellow man. If that is in more enlightened and more generous and compassionate and loving, then then. The whole thing has 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 greater meaning. So that if if my life is better because of how I've lived by what I believe is coming, then possibly generations yet to come will feel the same way. This is coming. This is something I have. You know, I want to prepare for. And you know, maybe maybe the story is just one of giving people an understanding that the change great change could possibly be in the in the offing and that if you adjust your life accordingly that in this life or the next or once you cross over and the veil is gone once you're on the other side maybe there is a greater understanding of of the purpose of life it will all be understood right that's that and i think that's the interesting thing is that you know we talked earlier about the second death in revelation uh, you know, uh, 20, 21, there's also the uh, second resurrection. And I think it's amazing uh-huh. that, you know, the way the Bible teaches that no one truly dies, that every, everyone, every human being will be resurrected. Everybody will be. And, you know, in, oh, yeah. in people about the Christian faith, that's not commonly even understood, that everybody gets brought back to life. Um, and, and so, yeah, so I think we will all, Certainly, at death, we'll have the full understanding, and so I think that's that's why I kind of see, you know, the the beauty of Bible prophecy is it, it, it proves God's word is true, 
You know, in Isaiah 46, uh-huh. I opened the book saying where God says, if you want to know that I'm God, if you want to know that I am El Elyon, the most high God, it's by prophecy. That's why I call it the God that I've declared the end from the beginning. So God, he, he, he uh, rests and bets his name on his prophecy. But, so one, it's a validation of the Bible. But two, I think it's also a great witness. You know that we should be that that it's it's a way to point people to the faith and try and direct them to God. And so I think that's you know you look at Noah again that you know as it was in the days of Noah this this warning and and prophecy of Jesus that's going to be a repetition of the days of Noah. In addition to building building the ark, we're told in the book of Hebrews that Noah was a, was a preacher. He was a preacher of righteousness. He was trying to win the world over, trying to get people on the ark. And so I say that all the time when I give talks. I say, you know, our job is to get people on the ark. Because if the Bible is true, if Revelation is true, if these cataclysmic judgments are coming, if, there's, if, there's, if the culmination of this conflict that stretches back millennia is coming to a conclusion, and there's a deception coming that's going to be unparalleled, something the world has never seen before, Jesus said this will be unlike any other time in the earth's history. If all this is true, then how can we not tell people to go to understand it, to believe it, to trust in Jesus? Like So, so I see it, too, as that's, that's where it's interesting to me, too, that you have a lot of Christians who are looking who are into Bible prophecy, but they're saying, but then they connect it to, earthly battles. We have to go battle against this political group or vote for this person or battle this party. It's so much <laughs> bigger than that. It's so oh, much gotcha. bigger than that. It has no, those, none of those things are going to matter in the Great Tribulation. It's not going to matter. There will be no Republicans or Democrats. All that will go will be long gone. <laughs> and so um, it's much bigger. Aren't, 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 so a lot, me, aren't, aren't a lot of the battles going? internal? Aren't a lot of the battles internal? I mean, I, I see I see the battles being more of an internal battle. In in other words, you know, watching for compassion, watching for love, watching for understanding, watching for trying to share a, a greater part of your being with other people. Um, it, it's it's almost as though the the revelation is is your spirit understanding the humanity and then going beyond that and and upping it another level or two within yourself so that so that you become the battleground internally and and so that so that the the revelation is you know uh, not not that you you're going to become god but that you understand how his presence in your life can enrich so much of of the area around you so that so that you know that there are many different levels of this perception wise and i think that that uh i mean you you've laid it out i mean it's it's physically out there but i think it's in there too yeah it, it is both it, it, it's in there as well right and the bible says that right speaking of prophecy it says knowing that these things shall come how then shall we live right if we know this is the truth then we should live in a matter that reflects that, which is, of course, living with compassion, love, mm-hmm. empathy. And, you know, we need more of that today. You know, I, I'm, I, I'm stunned 
by the things that I see people write on social media who will have Jesus in their their bio, and that they're just ripping people left and right, yeah. <laughs> just attacking people every day, you know, and, and saying this person's awful, this person's evil, they're terrible, this is, and I'm like that is not. <laughs> That is not the spirit of Christ, right? We want to operate. We have to have the mind of Christ. We have to crucify ourselves. And that's the thing that I, I think the Bible tells us that in our own strength, it's not going to happen. So we mm-hmm. get, but, but when we stay focused on the spiritual, on the eternal, on the spirit realm things and things that, that, that are always going to be here, that last forever rather than worrying about the day-to-day battles, and and don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to disparage anybody who's into politics or who vote. I was a political science major. I went to law school. I worked in the U.S. Senate for for as an intern. I was in law school, so I, I there's nothing wrong. It's, it's, it's a fuller part of your, of your liberty as a believer to po- participate in politics. So I have no problem with that at all. But it can't uh-huh. guide our faith or our behavior. That's not should be. That's not should be. That's not. That's not what the ultimate God of our behavior is by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> it's trying to live the way God wants us to live in a manner that reflects the fruits of the spirit: love, temperance, humility, patience, kindness, meekness. So that's so yeah. So I think it's it's there's a, it's certainly an exterior battle, but the interior battle is just as important because by doing those things, we can be and reflect the light of Christ to bring others onto the ark. Uh-huh. And I think that's the thing we have to remember is that our behavior, our life is our testimony, how we treat people, oh, yeah. our words, and, and our attitude yeah. about even ourselves. You know, this idea yeah, I of think our... mine, 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 mine. You know, it's just I, I get worried, but I see so much emphasis on this is my things, my money, my country, my government. It's like, wow. Christ is just with no thought of return, I, I, I give everything. Yeah, I think our actions are more powerful than our words, actually, yeah. um, many times. And and I think that that um, what you've done with your book is is amazing. And and you know when you think of of spiritual battles that that spiritual entities are going to be fighting for control over um, humanity. Which which has to be if if celestial entities are fighting over humanity, humanity must be very precious in order for there to be battles over us. Exactly. Yes, we are in the middle of the conflict, and we are also the prize. So yeah, we are very valuable. I, I would agree with that. So so that said, um, if we if we are that precious. How can we not respect ourselves more? Well, you know, pride, ego, hatred, envy, you know, it gets in the way, you know. And and, and let me give you an example, too. You know, think about this, is that, you know, one one of the most shocking verses in Scripture to me, I think, is during the Tower of Babel in the book of Genesis, where, of course, they're building this tower led by Nimrod, and God, God himself, the Lord himself says, about the tower, he says, if they complete this, there is nothing which they imagine that will be withheld from them. So there was some power they were on the verge of tapping into in this unified, you have the whole world in one place, attempting to, to build this tower, which I think was trying to access the spiritual realm. And God said, if they finish this, 
it, nothing will be withheld from them. They can do anything. So again, we talk about how precious we are, and we don't. In the there's some power in humanity and 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 in our unity that can be used, I think, for good or for bad. And um, but again, we we get we get very caught up, obviously, in our day to day lives and. In sin, well, I, in I, hatred, in racism, in sexism, and all these things that that There is an old fable, um, and I don't know where it comes from. I, I wish I could claim it, but I can't. Um, but it, it goes something like this: the gods created humanity, and their likeness, and you know, as as they, you know, we, we became as them. And they realized suddenly that they had, they had mistakenly done it exactly as a, cre- you know, like them, so that they imbued us with the same powers, the same controls, the, you know, all of the good stuff. And they panicked because they said, good heavens, what have we done? We have to, we, 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 we can't set them loose on the universe because they'll destroy it. It's it's like giving you know a child a loaded gun type stuff. And how can we how can we prevent them from utilizing their powers until it's time for them to really come into their own? And and they they argued left right up and down. Where can we take the memory of this power, the understanding of this power, and hide it from them until they're ready? And they argued for eons over it, you know, because they're immortal, so they had plenty of time. And finally, an, an, an elder woman said, you know, stop this. I'll tell you, you know, they were saying, we'll hide it in the moon, we'll hide it in space. And always, always the, the answer was, they're inquisitive, they'll find it. They're, you know, they, they have, have a questing spirit, they will, they'll, they'll find it. And, and she said, I can tell you where you can hide it, where most probably they won't find it for eons and eons and eons. And they said, where? She said, hide it, hide that knowledge inside of them. They'll never look there. Oh, interesting. (laughs) And that could be part of what's so precious about us, that we are coming to a time where we are recognizing that that power is there. Now, we don't know how to get it or use it yet, but, but, you know, give us time. And I'm not saying we will become gods, but we will have greater power than we have now. And, and I, I do truly believe that, that part of what is being fought over is control of the power that humanity holds within itself. Yeah, well, you know, the question is, I don't know how much, how much time we will have on the. I don't know how much time on the clock is left um, before these events in this year. But yeah, but there's definitely, certainly, you know, something special about humanity, and again, that why the you know the Antichrist wants full global worship. You know, that's he wants uh-huh. the whole world under his thumb. He's not he's not to destroy the world. He wants the world to he wants to rule the world. And so, uh, yeah, so I think I, I agree. I think the Bible supports that, that, that not only are we uh, precious, but that there is something in that unity that uh, there's a power there. And, and you know, it's even hinted up. You know, there's, um, 
I know Dan Brown, his book, uh, the book he wrote after Da Vinci Code. It wasn't Da Vinci Code, the next book he wrote. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm struggling with the name, but he wrote about, you know. An- he, Angels and well, Demons and The Inferno were the other two, I think. Uh, yeah, so he, he wrote, one, in one of his books he wrote about noetic sciences. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know that, that, that rings a bell, but uh, but again, it's the idea about a, a power in human, a metaphysical power in humans physically being around each other, and, uh-huh. uh, and, and obviously, obviously in large, large numbers. And so, I think again, even that is where science is kind of touching on something like what you know, what was God, what did God mean there in the Tower of Babel? You know, it's really it's a very interesting thing that God said. What what, what was going to happen? How? What, 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 why? There's some, why is it so significant? But it was significant enough that God came down from heaven to stop it from happening. So um, do you think there's something? Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, I find it interesting. They actually have found um, archaeologically where the base of the Tower of Babel was. And um, I think it's what 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 I love so much about it is that sometimes everybody looks at the at at the Old Testament especially, which is my favorite, um, and and says you know well these are just stories. Well, archaeologically they're finding that no, they're not just stories. They there is a physical there's physical proof that that you know these areas you know actually do exist. And, um, you know, the, the thought that, uh, like Sodom and Gomorrah, I mean, they, they have found the site of it and they have found that, that, you know, their, their, the power that, that actually destroyed them, um, created glass out of the sand. So it had to be an incredible burst of energy that, that, that did that destruction. And, you know, was, was it, you know, you know, was it a comet burst? Was it was it something that came from out of space or or whatever? And so that so that a lot of the stories in the Bible that have seemed ridiculous and and so obscure that they couldn't possibly be true, that they, we're find, finding now that 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 you know we can actually point to, to archaeological proof that that these places did exist and. and and some of these occurrences did exist, and it gives you a greater appreciation of, of you know, it, they aren't just stories. They aren't parables. They aren't, you know, make-believe to try to prove a point. There, there, there is validity behind so many of them, and do we totally understand the meaning? No, but, but it, it begs the question to go back and reread them and see if you can find something that applies to your life, or or that can inspire you in another direction. Because these aren't I, this this book is you know the best selling book at all time um, for a reason. It's been around for a long time. I just wish it weren't all in old English. That that really bothers me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, there are lots of versions out there, but I do think you're right, though. I think that the you know, and, and again, I think it goes back to I think even everything you just said was a fulfillment of prophecy. Because again, in the book of Daniel, chapter 12, we're told that knowledge is going to increase as we approach the end times. There's going to be this increase of knowledge. And so now we're benefiting from all the amazing archaeological discoveries that aren't just identifying uh-huh. places, they're identifying peoples. We're, in Israel, they've found royal seals with names of Hezekiah, the prophet Isaiah on them. 
I mean, there are numerous, you know, in the sands of Israel, um, discoveries uh-huh. being made that confirm scripture. They, they've found scrolls. They, it was amazing. They found a scroll that was burnt, that was in a, in a burnt building um, that was, I believe, about 2,300 years old that has been preserved. The scroll, they knew it was a scroll that had scripture on it, but it was literally charred black. And it's only in the last few years that using a, a LIDAR machine to essentially laser scan, something that they kind of use now if you're going to get uh, Invisalign, you might laser scan your teeth. It's a very – now it's a more commonly – the technology is a little cheaper, so it's now it's, it's more ubiquitous. And they yeah. now they can actually read the letters on the scroll. And it's a, it's a portion of the book of Leviticus, and it's word for word the same as Leviticus we have today. 2,300 years later. So, so even that, even the, even just the, the textual discoveries are just phenomenal because it's showing that, that, one, the validity of the Bible, but two, the consistency, that it, it's the exact same text that they were reading well, and, before. And isn't it, isn't it phenomenal that the words have come through time to remind us again of something that perhaps we have missed? Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, I mean, it's a big part of it. And 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 actually, have you ever read any of this material? I guess you must have read most of it, you know, in its original um, language. I mean, it it has to be more alive coming from from the Aramaic or the Hebrew than coming through all of the different you know iterations that that most of the Bibles that we read today have come through. Absolutely, and that's why I think it's so important when you're when doing research to to go back to the original text, to go back to the Hebrew meanings, because you know Hebrew is a very colorful language, and uh-huh. uh, you, you you just you know you can grasp more of the context um, from obviously from that language, even even the Septuagint, which I quote often, I quote it often because it was. It's one of the oldest translations from what we call Paleo Hebrew, the original Hebrew that had no vowels that was used in ancient times. And so you at least you have a, uh-huh. a Greek translation taken from what was the, the commonly used Hebrew manuscripts uh, in the days of Israel, of ancient Israel. So yeah, I, I agree. The, the language is so important, and, and that's why I, I, I and I love it. I love digging into uh, the understanding ancient Hebrew etymology and looking at what the words meant there and then the, the context of it in ancient times. And that's another, that's another benefit of reading the commentaries who you can read even someone like Josephus, who, again, was a Jew. He can bring a, a good, he comments on lots of scripture. In addition to being a historian, he comments on lots of the Bible. He writes about the Bible as just history. He doesn't distinguish between, okay, here is my time serving as a governor for the Roman Empire and then they have the story of Moses. He just writes it all as one historical account. And a lot of times he's quoting scripture, and you can get so much of a different interpretation and understanding because he's speak, thinking about this and writing on it from a first-century Jewish perspective. So I, I agree. It's really important to go back to the original text as, as often as you can. Well, you know, Strong's Concordance helps but then you're word for word for word, and then then you lose the meaning. I mean, 
in 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 many cases um what what um they when they were writing about something they they used the word heaven and they really meant sky and right you know it, it so it 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 does it does shift so much but but i mean my god you have to do word for word and that would take a long time um it, it, sure yeah. done it but but i i think that the 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 true meaning of the words um has evolved with time and and so uh, you know perhaps there were levels of an if it, we we call it inspired i guess that that the inspiration was there for the level of consciousness of the people that were reading it and as people evolve and and consciousness evolves then other meanings come out of it so that if it truly inspired it would it would it would be material that will have meaning for no matter what age it's written in or read in yeah for sure and I, and I think in many ways, especially when it comes to prophecy, the Bible achieves that. Because, again, we're seeing the, the prophecies, I think, have, have come to life uh, so much in this last decade. You know, I, a question here. I mean, the old prophets uh, obviously were old, and, and, you know, they go back thousands of years. Are there any new prophets? I mean, is there no more inspired writing? Um, there have to be new. I, I, I mean, of course, people were called prophets all the time in the in olden times, and and only those people that were, you know said things that came true are the ones that are that, that we hear about. But are there no more prophets? Well, I think there will be. Let's put it that way. I think there will be. Right. So I think you know one of the prophecies of the end times is that. There will be prophecies. I think there will be men and women who have prophets who, who will prophesy and see visions and dream dreams. So I think we'll see. I think we're in an intermission, so to speak, from that. But I think certainly once we're on the on the cusp or in the Great Tribulation, there will be prophesying and there will be people who are having divinely inspired visions because that's what Scripture says. So I think we're we're going to get a return to that, which again makes sense because. When you look at the errors, right, when you look at, the, you know, whether it's the days of Noah, the days Christ run, or the Great Tribulation, is there's just a massive amount of supernatural activity. You know, when Jesus was walking this earth, it seemed like almost every other person he encountered was possessed by a demon. He's talking to demons all throughout the Gospels. Everyone, they're everywhere. They're all over the place. And he was, he was covering a short amount of territory. Was it Jesus that said a prophet is not recognized in his time or in his town? I can't remember which. In his town, in his home, in his own oh. home, in his town, yeah. yeah. He, was, he was not re- well received uh, in <laughs> Nazareth. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, I, it, it, it's, so, so that, would, that would stand to reason that a prophet during this time won't be recognized until their time is over. Yeah, and then again, and, think about it too. Again, I think look at the two witnesses. You know, they're ever going to be rejoicing when they're killed, so they're not going to be well received either. So, no. you know, I think uh, <laughs> you know, history repeats, right? The scroll of time. 
Yeah, no, it's 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 really it's it's phenomenal material, and and I have to tell you, I I so thoroughly enjoyed reading it, and um, you're being so generous as to spend time with me to uh, dig into it because uh, you know it's I I I have a ton of questions constantly, and uh, you're, you're always so gracious to answer them. <laughs> oh, it's my pleasure. Um, it's my pleasure. Well, I, I do want to let people know that they can find you at judgmentofthenephilim.com. Is there any other place that they can find you? Sure. So Judgment of the Nephilim is also my Facebook ID as well as my Instagram and my YouTube channel. So you can find me on any of those channels and also judgmentofthenephilim.com, of course. And uh, all my stuff is there, you know, my books. I also did two documentaries, uh, on one on Judgment of the Nephilim, one on the final Nephilim just to provide a more high-level overview if you want to just get mm-hmm. the book in a night and don't want to, have to read a, you know, 450-page book. It's just kind of more of an entree level into this into these concepts. And uh, for those who want to get deeper, there are study guides as well for both books. Yeah, I, 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 I have found it uh, fascinating to read them, and, and certainly it's added to um, my wealth of whatever, you know, my... my uh, my search for the meaning of life, and uh, yes. it, it, it is, they're enlightening, they're charming, and, and it, they're written in such a way that, that you, can, you can read it, you can apply it, you can file it away, you can think about it, and you can talk about it. You, you don't make it so hard to understand that, you know, you, 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 you know, put the book down and say, well, I'll try again in 20 years. Um, so... <laughs> Thank no, it's it's it, 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 no, it's it's not that it's on on a very low level. It's just that it's 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 in a way that I think anybody can grip it from no matter where they are, and they're very well worth a read. Both of the books um, have provided me with a ton of material and, and questions galore. But I thank you so much for for spending your time with me. Um, and certainly when the next book comes out, you may be sure I will be right on your doorstep wanting to book you for another show. <laughs> I look forward to it, Barb. Thank you so much. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you very much, too. And uh, good night, everybody. I, I just noticed my time was up. And um, I so appreciate Ryan for being here because he is such a gracious man and he has such a wealth of information. Please check his books out. They are well worth the read. And I promise you, you will have questions that you'll be able to to talk to people about unbelievably and and check out all of his channels because they are all fabulous. Um, Check out uh, our calendar. Check us out on YouTube. This will be up on YouTube shortly. And um, if you enjoy what you're seeing, please, please, please subscribe to the channel. Uh, that's how we know you're listening and, and how we know those those shows that, that, you know, intrigued you as much as they intrigued us. Thanks so much, everybody, and good night.